Well, beloved, I would invite you to open up your Bibles this morning to 1 Timothy chapter 2, and I would also invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. <clears throat> Excuse me. We're going to begin 1 Timothy chapter 2 this morning, and we're going to do so by taking up verses 1 through 7. And so as Pastor Justin has just prayed, let us hear the Word of God, and may it wash over our souls, may it cleanse us, may it renew us, may it give us hope and joy and life. Beloved, this is the Word of God. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. 1 Timothy 2, beginning in verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications... Prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. You may be seated. <clears throat> the Anglican theologian, Alec Martyr, he once remarked, to abandon prayer is to embrace atheism. To abandon prayer is to embrace atheism. We've expressed something of a similar idea in one of our 12 core values. This is what we confess when it comes to fervent prayer. We believe that we exalt the triune God by acknowledging that He is sovereign over all things, and in and of ourselves, we are completely unable to be what He has called us to be or to do what He has called us to do. This means we are humbly driven toward Him in fervent prayer. The point is, church, we are to be a people who cry out to God. We, we are a people who can't not do that, right? We recognize, because the Spirit of God has opened our eyes, we recognize that we are utterly and desperately in need, and we recognize that He is infinitely sufficient to meet all of our needs. And therefore, we ought to make prayer a priority, but not just prayer. As we will learn this morning from God's Word, we ought to make public prayer a priority. Allow me to explain. As we, as we turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2 this morning, we approach a new section in Paul's letter. You'll remember Paul has spent the first chapter encouraging Timothy, galvanizing, galvanizing him really for the work that is in front of him. And so you'll remember, Paul spent the first chapter calling upon Timothy to do what? Well, to guard the gospel, and to celebrate the gospel, and to proclaim the gospel, and to even fight for the truth of the gospel. But now, here in chapter 2, the gears shift. Because this new section, it concerns the public gathering of the church. What we are doing right here and right now. 
And so you'll find in chapter 2, from men and women and their respective roles in the church, to chapter 3, and the office bearers of the church. Paul wants to make sure that when the people of God gather together for worship, that Christ is exalted. And so this section, it begins here in verse 1, and it goes all the way through to the end of chapter 3. And so how does Paul end this section that we begin this morning? Well, beginning in 1 Timothy 3.14, you might turn and take a look, 1 Timothy 3.14, we read, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So back up for a second. Why has Paul written this section, chapter 2 and chapter 3, why has he written it to Timothy? Well, so that we may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. So so that's why I'm putting the accent on public and not just private prayer. Because the context is when the church gathers for worship. And think about it, especially, again, given all of the woes of chapter 1, right? All of the false teaching and the false teachers of chapter 1. How is the church to combat the poison of that? Well, certainly one of those ways is by the church being committed to gather and pray together. So, again, the focus this morning is on public prayer. As Pastor Justin has already mentioned, when we gather together here on Sunday mornings, and then when we come together again this evening for prayer. So with that in mind, let's see how God's Word would instruct us and encourage us and even challenge us. And we're going to do this this morning by looking at the who, the what, and the why of prayer. The who, the what, and the why. When it comes to the who of our public prayer, what does verse 1 announce? But first of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for who? For all people. This is what scripture says. That's who we should pray for. We should be praying for all people. Now, very quickly, you'll notice in verse 1 that Paul lists four types or four categories of prayers. And there are those who go to great lengths to try to differentiate each type of prayer that is listed here. And I will concede to you that there might be a measure of benefit in doing that. For example, the first word there, supplications, it's from a root that means to lack or to be deprived of or to be without. So prayers of supplication are prayers for God to meet specific needs, things that you do not have, right? The second kind there in verse 1 is simply referred to as prayers. And this is a more general term indicating basic or simple requests that you and I would make before God. Then you have listed intercessions. That is, urgent and bold appeals for God to intervene and work on behalf of others. 
And then finally, you have thanksgivings. This, as you can imagine, describes expressions of gratitude and thankfulness for the fact that God has met our needs. And congregation, while there might be some value again in trying to differentiate these, we have to be very careful that we don't miss the forest for the trees. Because Paul's point is simply this. As a church, we need to pray all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. That's Paul's point. We are to be a people that pray all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. And those all kinds of people, it even includes kings. Enter verse 2. For kings and all who are in high positions. And I realize that at first glance, this might not seem all that exceptional to you or I, but I assure you to Paul's original readers, this was quite revolutionary. And that is because of this. Here's the deal. We are not called upon to offer supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings simply for one another, for our friends, for those whom we love, for those we get along with. If, if that was the case, that would be easy, right? But that's not the directive here. The church is called upon, verse 2, to pray for kings and all who are in high positions. And what you and I need to understand is that during this time, when, when Paul wrote his letter to Timothy, there was no such thing as a Christian king or a Christian ruler. In fact, those with the most power in the state, they were, as Calvin puts it, enemies of the gospel persecutors of the poor Christians, murderers, and wicked men. Maybe now we can begin to see how revolutionary this is. You see, the church is not called upon simply to pray for its friends, but as Christians, we are called upon to pray even for our enemies. I hope that in all of this, you can begin to see something of the outward focus of the church's corporate prayer life. The, the pastoral prayer that is offered every Lord's Day morning, the, the prayer that Pastor Justin offered, and then when we assemble again this evening for our time of prayer, what God's Word is telling us is that our prayers should be large and expansive and wide-ranging. We should be not in our holy huddles, but we should be facing outside of us. So yes, we should pray for the peace and the purity and the prosperity of this church. That's all true. But we should also offer those same prayers for other churches in our area. And yes, of course, we should plead with God for renewal and revival, and reformation in this church. But we should also be a people who are interceding on behalf of missionaries, and evangelists, and church planters. And, as the passage in front of us tells us, we should also be in prayer for our local, state, and federal leaders. Again, for kings and all who are in high positions. This, beloved, should be a mark 
of our prayers? Are, are we simply praying for ourselves or are we praying for others? John Stott tells a horribly discouraging story. I'll let you hear it in his own words. He says, some years ago, I attended public worship in a certain church. The pastor was absent on holiday, and a lay elder led the pastoral prayer. He prayed that the pastor might enjoy a good vacation, which was fine, and that two lady members of the congregation might be healed. Stott adds, which was also fine, we should pray for the sick. Stott then continues, but that was all. The intercession can hardly have lasted 30 seconds. Stott then concludes with these words. I came away saddened, sensing that this church worshipped a little village god of their own devising. There was no recognition of the needs of the world and no attempt to embrace the world in prayer. And so... My exhortation to us as a congregation is that we do not fall into this same trap. That that we don't worship a village God, as Stott puts it. This is not our God. Our God is not bound by borders or by zip codes or by geography. There is only one true and living God. It is our creator, our sustainer, and our redeemer. That is the God that we serve. And so we as a church ought to pray like we serve a God over all the world. Now that's the who of prayer. We are to pray for, end of verse 1, all people. But that presses us on to our second question, and that is this. Well, what are we to pray? In the middle of verse 2 answers. That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. What, What are we to pray, beloved? Let me put it to you this way. We are to pray for peace amid persecution. Peace amid persecution. That's why we are to pray for, verse 2, kings and all who are in high positions. Why? Please hear this. Because it is these kings, these rulers, these who are in high positions who are empowered to enact laws and policies that do one of two things. That either protect Christians or make them a target for unjust treatment. Do, Do you see the aim here? The goal? As Christians, whose home is not ultimately here, that's true, but who are citizens of this earthly land, we are a people, and it's okay to say this, who desire to lead, verse 2, a peaceful and quiet life. That's what we want, isn't it? And, And it's the idea of being free from all agitation. To to not be disturbed by others. So that what Paul envisions here is a tranquil life. One that is free from the hassles and harassments of a turbulent society. Isn't that what we long for? That's what I long for. And so God's word is telling us this is what we should pray for. And on top of that, we should Live these peaceful and quiet lives, how? As the end of verse 2 clarifies, godly and dignified in every way. To be godly is to have awesome respect for God. 
It means not just our heads, but also our hearts and hands. They are given over to him. And this idea of being dignified in every way, it's the idea that as Christian people, we ought to be serious or respectable when it comes to God. We ought to treat holy things as holy things. So as God's people, we are to be those who live reverent and honorable lives. That's the point that Paul is making here. So what do we pray for, church? Well, like I said, we pray for peace amid persecution, but also we pray for salvation for sinners. Salvation for sinners. I say that because the overall focus here, it seems to be evangelistic. And so that's what we want our prayers to be too, right? We want to be a church that is evangelistically minded and therefore evangelistically prayerful. This is our calling. I'm saying that because of how verses 4 through 7 connect to the flow of thought. Notice that Paul immediately moves to salvation, right? He immediately puts the pedal to the metal and he connects all of this praying to Christ and to the gospel. So that what we are to pray for is salvation of sinners. I trust that this is true in your heart. I trust it's true that, that you long to see souls saved. It's true that as God's people, we are to be those who shed our tears for those around us who are perishing. Our knees, they, they ache, do they not? From the time that we spend pleading with God that God would open the eyes of those who are around us. I know that you do this. I trust that you do this in your life. Just in your private life, so it is in our public time together, we, we carve out time and we pray, we beg God to soften hearts and to renew minds and to open eyes and to unstop ears. This, this is to be our posture of prayer. Let me clarify something, because in all of this, I want to make sure that we understand that we are not revolutionaries. We are not those who are seeking to storm the capital and overthrow the authorities. But neither are Christians called to be ostriches, just sort of burying their heads in the sand. What God's Word tells us is that we are to be a people who pray that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. And we strive to do this as those who are, verse 2, godly and dignified in every way. And so this is why we pray for peace amid persecution. And this is why we pray for the salvation of sinners. And just so that we're all on the same page, please recognize that we are not, I repeat, not praying for the American dream. That's not what verse 2 is describing at all. It doesn't say that we are to pray for a quiet, middle-class life, one that is free from stress. If that's what you heard, then you zigged when I zagged. What we are to be praying for, please hear this, is that the church would be the church unencumbered by the state. 
And if 2020, what is it, 2020 taught us anything, it's that this is what we need God to grant us. Paul is telling Timothy, and he's calling all of us to pray, that as a church, that we would be given a measure of safety by the civil authorities, please hear this, so that the gospel would go forward, so that churches would be planted, so that disciples would be made. That's what we are praying for. We're not praying for laziness. We're not praying for apathy. We're not praying for comfort. That is not what verse 2 is talking about. What it is talking about is that when the church gathers together to pray, that we are pleading with God as a people, that we are pleading with God that we would be be able to live freely and without fear of persecution so that we could storm the gates of hell knowing that those gates will not prevail. We are to be a people who gather and worship and preach and pray and evangelize and disciple. And we are to do this because this is what Christ commands us to do. And so that is what we pray for. This all brings us to the why. We've seen the who and the what, but why? Why are we to be praying? And our passage answers that question in two ways. Why do we pray? First, because God desires. And second, because Christ died. God desires and Christ died. Pick it up with me in verse 3. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Look at verse 4. What is God's desire? God's desire is for the salvation of people. That is why we pray. And so zoom out with me for just a quick moment and, and try, to, try to see how these dominoes are falling, okay? I, I want you to see how all of this connects. As a church, we are urged by Scripture when we gather to offer supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings, verse 1. And we are to offer such requests, end of verse 1, for all people. And as verse 2 tells us, that all people includes kings and all who are in positions, uh, who are in high positions. So you see how the dominoes are falling? And we pray for these governing authorities so that we, the church, may experience peace amid persecution. And we pray for that peace because we want to go out and evangelize, right? Because we want to see the salvation of sinners. And we do this, why? Here's the last domino to fall. Because that is what God desires. It is God's desire to see people, end of verse 4, be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, that's the first part in answering the why question, God desires. The other answer that Scripture gives us here is that Christ died. Verses 5 and 6 reveal, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, here it is, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Now, in Those two little verses, Paul wants us to see three realities with respect to Christ. 
And all three are crucial. Let me give them to you, and then we'll look at each one very briefly. Here are the three truths about Christ. We have to consider his man, his mission, and his mediator. For starters, Christ was a man. Now, I realize in a setting like this, that's probably not that big of a shock, is it? But, but that's the emphasis there at the end of verse 5, isn't it? This is why we, 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 this is how is Christ referred to. He is referred to as the man, Christ Jesus. Now, before you start trembling in your chair, none of this means that Christ wasn't also God. We know from the rest of Scripture that Christ most certainly was divine. That's not the point. The note that Paul strikes here is that Christ was a human being, that, that he was a man just like you and I are. To which you might be tempted to respond, okay, that's fine, but, but what does it matter? Why is it so important that Christ be a man? Or to ask it the way that question 22 does from the New City Catechism, why must the Redeemer be truly human? Here's the answer from the catechism, at least part of it. That in human nature, he might, on our behalf, perfectly obey the whole law and suffer the punishment for human sin. So why did Christ have to be a human being? Well, because you are a human being. And you need to understand, in the drama of Scripture, it is human beings, not trees, not dogs, not fish, not stars, not monkeys, not snowflakes, but it is human beings that have sinned against God. And so God became a human being in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to come and redeem, you guessed it, human beings. This is why God had to become a man. But that is not enough, because Christ had to do more than merely become incarnate, right? Being merely a human isn't enough. We know that because, well, we're all humans and we can't redeem ourselves. God's Word tells us there had to be a sacrifice. There has to be an atonement for sin. If I can put it crudely, there is a debt that is owed. Which brings us to the second reality with respect to Christ, Scripture would have us to see this morning. His mission. Beloved, hear me well. Christ came to die. That was His mission. That is why He was born. That is why He came into the world. He came to die. And that's what verse 6 is getting at. Speaking of Christ, we read, "...who gave Himself as a ransom." And that term, ransom, it is a rich biblical term. It refers to the release of a captive by the payment of a price. And beloved, that is exactly what Christ did for us. That's what his mission consisted of, right? He came to pay the price for our sin. He, he came to satisfy the very justice of God. This is why he took on flesh and became a human being like us. He came to, to die a sinner's death, to, to ransom us by his blood from sin and death and hell. Beloved, in a very real and profound sense, 
Christ came on a rescue mission. He came to rescue us from the very wrath of God that each and every one of us deserve because of our sin. That was his mission. This all means that Christ is our mediator, which is the third reality Paul won't let us miss. Because of who Christ is, because of what Christ has done, he is perfectly suited to be our mediator. Or as verse 5 puts it, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. What, what is a, a mediator, you ask? Well, in short, a mediator is something of a go-between. As the one and unique and only God-man, Christ is able to faithfully represent both God and humanity. He is the go-between. He is the mediator. He is the only one that could ever do for us what we could never do for ourselves. As Philip Ryken has put it, Christ paid the price that only man could owe and only God could pay. Or as the Puritans loved to say, Jesus Christ is able to strike hands on both sides of the covenant of grace. So church, we've seen the who and the what of prayer. But what about the why? Why do we pray? We pray because God desires and Christ died. We pray because God desires the salvation of souls and Christ has come and died to redeem those same souls. This is the impetus. This is why we are to be a church that prays. Because it is God's desire and because Christ died. Now, real quick, I, I do want to address perhaps a lingering question in some of your minds. And if you have this question, it is no doubt provoked by the use of that little word all found throughout this section of Scripture. End of verse 1. We are to pray for all people. Verse 4. God desires all people to be saved. Verse 6. Christ gave himself as a ransom for all. All, all, all. How, how are we to understand what God's Word is telling us here? If I, if I can be direct, what are we to make of that little word. Well, brothers and sisters, in thinking, in, in thinking through this, there are two serious errors that we must avoid. On the one hand, you have universalism. On the other hand, you have what I call unableism. And both must be vehemently rejected because both are poison in the well of God's grace that will rot our souls from the inside out. When it comes to universalism, this is the position that all people will ultimately receive salvation from God. Literally, everyone will be saved. In this view, hell does not exist. And if it does, hell is only something that is temporary. And that's because eventually every single people every single person all people go to heaven that's universalism and before you shake your heads you should know 
universalists, they point to passages like the one that is in front of us this morning. And you know what they say? They say, all means all, right? And if God really desires, verse 4, all people to be saved, and if Christ really, verse 6, gave himself as a ransom for all, well, then all people will be saved. That's what God's word says, right? Don't you take the Bible literally? That's what they'll say. Church, there are many, many problems with such a view. For the sake of time, I'm only going to mention two in passing. First, it's patently obvious that the entirety of Scripture itself contradicts such a view. Hell is a very real place, and you'd better believe it will be occupied for eternity, for uh, 2 Thessalonians 1.8, by those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So while it is true that if we only had 1 Timothy 2, if that was the entirety of God's revelation to us, it might be plausible to think that there's a grain of truth to this idea of universalism. But we don't have just 1 Timothy 2. We have all of Scripture, and all of Scripture forces us to see that such a view is incorrect. And then second... We have to be honest and say that all doesn't always mean all. There are many different ways in which that word is used. And we we know this is the case with our own personal experience. Who hasn't said or heard, I've been waiting all day for you? We don't mean literally all day. We're using it as a figure of speech, an exaggeration in that context. But more importantly, the biblical text itself reveals A multitude of uses for this little word, all. Just one quick example will suffice. In Mark 1, we read of John the Baptist's ministry. And we are told, Mark 1, 5, And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan. To which I say, really? All the country of Judea? All Jerusalem? There wasn't a single person who didn't get baptized that day? Literally every single person was dunked in that one afternoon? Of course not. And that's because all doesn't always mean all. In fact, quite often in Scripture, all is used this way. All without distinction, not all without exception. All without distinction not all without exception. It's a helpful phrase that we'll return to in a couple of moments. So 1 Timothy 2 should not lead us to universalism, but neither should it lead us to unableism. What's that, you ask? It's the position that says this. Yes, God wants everyone saved. And yes, Christ died to save everyone. But at the end of the day... It's up to them. Christ can't actually save apart from your participation. And I call that unableism because in that view, and I don't mean to be uncharitable here, but in that view, Christ is weak. He's wimpy. He he wishes, oh, how he wishes that he could save everyone. He wishes that he could save all. But unfortunately, he can't. He's unable And he's unable because he's handcuffed. 
Christ is handcuffed by Satan or by our free will or, or, or by something like that. But again, Scripture clearly refutes this error in other places. Well-trod and well-established doctrines like sovereignty and election and predestination and irresistible grace, they make no room for such unableism. Our confession, our hope, is that the Lord Jesus Christ, He is not a limp-wristed Savior, but He is a sovereign Savior. And that He actually shed His precious blood to redeem. And you know what? That means He will redeem. And those to whom the Father has given Christ, we are told, of them none will be lost. So, so Christ is not unable to save. Christ is actually a sovereign Savior. So then, if we are to avoid universalism and unableism, how are we to understand the passage that is in front of us? And here we return to that pithy statement, all without distinction, not all without exception. In other words, I think that it is best to understand all here as all kinds. All kinds. Not literally every single person, but all kinds of persons. And if that sort of makes you a little uncomfortable, allow me a test case. Put your eyes back up on verse 1. Because in verse 1, we are called to pray for all people. Let me ask you, does that mean that we are to pray for literally every single person on planet Earth? Are we commanded by God's Word to open the phone book and get to work starting with the A's? To ask it differently, are you and I, is this church in sin if we don't do that because this is a command of Scripture? And the answer, of course, is no. The context is clear. Paul is telling Timothy and, and us that we are to pray for all kinds of people. And as verse 2 tells us, that includes all kinds of people, even kings, even all who are in high positions. You see, it's, it's all without distinction, not all without exception. And I would suggest to you that that's also the best way to describe, or to understand rather, the all of verse 4 and verse 6, where in verse 4 we are told that God desires all people to be saved, and where in verse 6, uh, Christ gave himself as a ransom for all. I think what Paul means here again is all kinds of people. He means Jews and Gentiles, black and white, man and woman, rich and poor, young and old, slave and free. Again, all without distinction, but not necessarily all without exception. So, with that being said, let's return to the main theme of the passage and the main theme reveals that we as a church have a calling. And that calling is an outward-facing one. It is one that is directed to our neighbors and co-workers, our family members and our friends. It's one that is directed to those who are across the street and to those who are across the world. And what God's Word tells us is that our calling, it begins with prayer. 
We are to be a people, a church, that makes public prayer a priority. It is to be the very lifeblood of this church. And I think this is extremely challenging for us as a people, as, as sort of 21st century Westerners, because we are just pragmatic to the, to the 18th letter, to the 18th degree. We, there are a million things that we can do, a million ways to use our time. There, there are countless things that are more productive and more effective, so we think, than actually gathering together and praying. And so I think in a lot of ways, God's word is, is something of a wake-up call to us. To those of us that, you know, wherever my phone is, we, we have more information, more servants on our phone than King Solomon had in his court. We can do a million things before lunch. And God says, pump the brakes, man. Get together with my people. Pray. This is how we storm the gates. This is how we do God's will. This is how we grow as Christians. We humble ourselves, we get on our knees, and we pray together. We can do a million things after we pray. We can't do anything until we pray. So, let's make public prayer a priority. And as we do so, let's seek to glorify our Savior. Join with me in prayer. Our Father, we are a people who are prone. Prone to our phones. Prone to yard work. Prone to fun prone to a million other things and humble ourselves before you to acknowledge our dependence upon you and to cry out to you in prayer. And this is true, not just in our private lives, but how much more so is it true in the life of our congregation? We, we gather on Sunday mornings and as the pastoral prayer is prayed, it is so easy to think about the affairs of this afternoon or of this new week even more convicting when we consider how small our prayer gathering is on Sunday evening. Lord, we pray that you would bring renewal to our hearts, and we know that the first place that will show up is in our prayer meetings. So please pour out your Spirit upon us. Show us the value of this. Show us, the, again, our utter neediness and dependence upon you, our God, and cause all of this, we pray, to not be an exercise of duty, but of delight that we would truly long to gather together and to lift up our voices and cry out to you. We pray that you would work this grace in our hearts in the name of Christ our Savior. And God's people said, Amen.